Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the turkey base continued on Monday, although Tuesday we did have a bit of a reversal Tuesday bounce in the lira, rising about 7% or so in today's trading, but still down considerably uh, from where it was a few weeks, a few months ago. But I, you know, I do believe that the financial media is exaggerating the problems that existed in Turkey prior to the crisis reaching the headlines. Yes, Turkey has a current account deficit, but the current account deficit is not nearly as large as the media is making it out to be. In fact, it's kind of similar in size to the current account deficit that the United States is running, if you want to look at it as a percentage of GDP. In fact, Turkey's trade deficit is a much smaller percentage of its GDP than is the American trade deficit. The problem in Turkey is really twofold. One, it is the strengthening dollar, which is putting pressure on all of the emerging market currencies and economies. It's just that Turkey was you know, a weaker link in that chain, and so Turkey is being disproportionately impacted by the outlook that the dollar is going to keep rising and therefore put a lot of pressure on economies that have been attracting a lot of foreign investment where a lot of the loans are in dollars because a lot of the money that has been coming into the Turkish economy has been private investment fueling uh, capital investment within the Turkish economy. It's not the government borrowing all this money. It's businesses borrowing money and the international community having been willing to lend because, after all, interest rates were really low for a long period of time. And so capital was chasing a higher yield. And some of that capital went into emerging markets, including Turkey. But obviously, you have a lot of loans that are dollar denominated. And that's one of the reasons that a rising dollar is so bad for a lot of economies because it represents a significant increase in the real value of their debt, 
both in the interest payments that you need to make to service the debt and paying off the remaining principal. But what really elevated the problem for Turkey was not simply that the currency was falling, but look at what their president, Erdogan, uh, was saying. He is a populist leader that is saying things that appeal to voters. And he's also appealing to nationalism among voters and trying to make it, you know, Turkey against the world and let's pursue policies where we put Turkish interests first. He has been critical of the central bank and their raising of interest rates and has been particularly critical of the whole concept of raising interest rates. Now, also, one of the things that the media has been saying about Turkey is that, oh, they've kept interest rates below the rate of inflation. They haven't. They've actually kept interest rates above the rate of inflation. Yes, they've had high inflation as measured by their CPI, which is probably a lot more honest than our CPI in America. But yes, Turkey has had high inflation, but their interest rates have been even higher than their inflation rate. So the Turkish central bank has not been nearly as reckless as, let's say, the Federal Reserve over the same period of time. But it's just that as inflation has been accelerating, Erdogan has talked negatively about the need for the Turkish central bank to continue to raise interest rates to fight off that inflation. And he's even said that raising interest rates are inflationary because it increases prices, which is true. Right. Rising interest rates fuel an inflationary fire. But it is pretty much one of the ways to to stomp out a, a fire that is burning by currency speculators who are shorting your currency. One way to make it a lot more expensive for speculators to short your currency is to raise interest rates. I mean, certainly in the short run, that works. And the Turkish economy, actually, if you look at their overall debt to GDP, it is dramatically lower than, let's say, the United States the Turkish economy can actually afford the higher interest rates, not without a recession. It would certainly bring about a recession if they raised interest rates high enough to really reverse uh, the decline in the lira. They would definitely bring about a recession in Turkey, but it wouldn't destroy the entire economy. See, the difference is if we actually in America were forced by the same currency speculators to jack up interest rates high enough to defend the dollar, we would destroy the country. We wouldn't just have a recession. It would be an economic catastrophe that all American politicians would resist. In fact, if you look at the populism of Erdogan in Turkey and compare it to the populism of Trump in the United States, it's very similar. I mean, Trump has already been critical of the Fed's rate hikes. Can you imagine what would happen if the economy was weakening and the Fed was still hiking rates? I mean, people want to act like, oh, there's... Whereas compromising in uh, in Turkey, the government is interfering with the independence of the central bank. Well, first of all, the fact that we have an independent central bank is all a bunch of nonsense. But don't you think that Trump would interfere with the Federal Reserve if Trump believed the Federal Reserve was doing something that was hurting the economy? Even if the Federal Reserve believed it was necessary to restrain inflation or to restrain a run on the dollar, he would be just as political. And when you look at the current accounts and the trade deficits, the problem is bigger here. First of all, in the United States, our GDP is all a bunch of fluff. So I think if you take out all the fluff, 
and let's say just look at manufacturing, forget about all the service sector and government spending. If you take a look at the wealth producing portion of our economy and then take a look at the trade deficit and the current account deficit, it is enormous as a percentage, much, much bigger than if you were to perform the same exercise on a country like Turkey. And if you look at, again, where interest rates are in Turkey right now, I think they were even 14% already before. And I'm not sure exact, so I, I could be off. But about 14%, let's say, were the rates in Turkey. Can you imagine what the U.S. economy would be like with 14% interest rates? I mean, forget about 14. What about four? I mean, we're at two, right? We're, I mean, imagine getting up to four. The fact that the Turkish economy could even function with 14% interest rates, I mean, America would be would completely implode. Now, sure, you could say, well, but they have they had inflation of 10% or 12% or whatever it was, and we don't have that high inflation here. Well, I think we have much higher inflation than we want to officially admit. But if you look at the, the absolute real level of interest rates, real interest rates have always been higher in Turkey than they have been in the United States. In fact, today, interest rates remain negative. The Fed is at 2%. Inflation is higher than 2%. It's basically 3%, even if you believe the government's numbers. So all the criticism that is being leveled against Turkey, that their deficits are too big, they have a current account deficit, they're keeping interest rates artificially low, they're keeping interest rates below the rate of inflation, all of that criticism can be applied to the United States. That's why in my last commentary, I titled it, America is the real Turkey, because in fact, we are. And all the people who are willing to um, skewer Turkey, right, fry Turkey, because it's doing exactly what the United States is doing, yet they don't recognize the same problems that are building in the U.S. Now, the difference is, America's creditors don't recognize that either. The irony of it is people who are worried about large deficits, unsustainable current account deficits and interest rates being artificially low and stoking runaway inflation. The people who are worried about those things and who are selling lira are buying U.S. dollars. Well, that is jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. Because whatever people are worried about happening in Turkey, it's going to happen in spades in the United States. Of course, the biggest irony is what they should be buying if they're worried about the Turkish lira is they should be buying gold. And that's the one thing they're not buying. Gold made a new low for the year again yesterday. We plunged about $17, $18 back below $1,200 an ounce. We remain below $1,200 an ounce today. We gained back a few bucks. But 11.93, I think, is where we close. Gold stocks, most gold stocks, not all gold stocks, hitting new 52-week lows, not only yesterday, but again today. And, of course, I think part of the reason that the gold market is being sold off is the shorts are pressing their bets. They're being emboldened by the fact that we've had this crisis that should be good news for gold, right? A crisis in the, uh, uh, the Turkish lira, that could spread to India, to other emerging markets, right, into the stock markets. The crisis should be sparking a bid in gold. The fact that it's not means traders are saying, wait a minute, gold's not going up on good news. It's not going up on events that would normally cause it to rise. Well, then it's going to go down, right? If it can't rise on good news, it's going lower. And then people are emboldened to short even more. 
But the reason that gold is not going up on safe haven buying is because people don't perceive it as a safe haven right now. They perceive the U.S. dollar as a safe haven. And the trade is anything that's good for the dollar is bad for gold because people don't think it's possible for gold to go up while the dollar is also going up. Now, apart from the fact that that's not true, there are plenty of periods of time where both gold and the dollar have risen, right? It just means that gold is rising faster than the dollar relative to other currencies. But right now, to the extent that people are buying dollars, they're not buying gold. And if they're not buying gold, they're selling it. And of course, if they're not buying gold, they're certainly not buying gold stocks and they're selling those even harder. But the key is, or the question is, when will people realize what they are doing? When will they connect the dots to understand the similarities between the United States and Turkey and the fact that we are ultimately in, in an even worse position, in an even more vulnerable position? For Turkey to do the right thing, it would be politically unpopular. They could cut some government spending, not that their budget deficits are anywhere near the size of ours in the United States, but they could cut government spending. They could jack up interest rates in the short run and, and punish the speculators. They could take a recession, but their economy would be fine. I mean, there are a lot of strength. There are a lot of good things that have actually been happening in that Turkish economy. Again, it is not the basket case uh, that the media is making it out to be, but it does show you the dangers of what a populist president can do uh, with rhetoric and even actions that cause fear in the market. Because that is exactly what is going to happen in the United States, again, on a much bigger scale. But when it starts to happen in the United States, there is no way to stop it. And there is no recession that we can deliberately bring on to, to put out the fire. We have put ourselves in a position where they're, they're, we're damned if we do and we're damned if they don't. There's going to be no way. When the speculators start attacking the dollar, when the money starts flowing out of the dollar, because it's the dollar now that is perceived to be in danger, when people are worried about our trade deficits and our current account deficits and our artificially low interest rates and our endless money printing, when we slip back into a recession and no one is talking about the booming economy, when the Fed has to start not only talking about cutting rates, but actually cutting them, when they have to launch QE4 and inflation really starts to spiral out of control, everything that people are afraid of happening in the emerging markets is going to be happening here. And the emerging markets are going to be able to breathe collective sighs of relief because as the dollar tanks, right, now all of these problems that are being created by a strong dollar go away. And the extent to which the world wakes up and decides that, you know what, we don't have to finance the U.S. trade deficits. We don't have to finance the current account deficits. We don't have to take our hard-earned savings and plow them into U.S. treasuries. There isn't going to be a giant sucking sound as all the capital all around the emerging markets gets sucked into the U.S. by the United States government in order to finance multi-trillion dollar deficits. When the world leaves all the financing to the Federal Reserve, and all the money to buy all the treasuries has to come from a printing press, right? That's when it's a dollar crisis. It's not an EM crisis. It is a U.S. dollar crisis and a sovereign debt crisis. You know, speaking about the president and, and populist uh, politics, I couldn't believe when Trump actually came out a couple of days ago and expressed his support for U.S. citizens boycotting Harley-Davidson motorcycles, boycotting 
Now, he's the president of the United States, and he says, yes, U.S. citizens should not buy Harley-David motorcycles. Now, why did he say that? Well, Harley announced that they were going to be shifting some production of some of their motorcycles, specifically the motorcycles that are going to be sold in Europe. They are going to shift production to Europe to better serve that market in a more competitive way. And part of the motivation, I don't know if it's all of it, but part of the motivation is the tariffs that are being imposed by the European Union in retaliation for the tariffs imposed by Trump. So Trump imposes tariffs on foreign products. Foreign governments react by imposing tariffs on some of our products going in. And so to get around that, then Harley-Davidson says, okay, we'll manufacture some motorcycles in the EU and therefore they won't be subject to the tariffs, right? Trump is wanting foreign companies to do the same thing, right? They probably want European or Asian companies to make more products in the United States. And if they did that, right, then they would avoid the tariffs that he's imposing. And they, you know, so they might be more competitive to the extent that uh, that results in lower prices. But now he wants to encourage American citizens not to buy Harley products when one of the reasons that Harley-Davidson is going to manufacture some of its motorcycles offshore is because of Trump's tariffs. But by the way, the Harley-Davidson's that American consumers would be boycotting would be the very motorcycles that were still made in the United States. Harley is not saying we're going to manufacture motorcycles in Europe and then import them into the United States and sell them into the U.S. market. Harley is saying we're still going to manufacture motorcycles for the American market in America. We're just going to manufacture motorcycles for the European market in Europe. And based on that, Trump is like, yeah, let's boycott Harley-Davidson. I mean, first of all, what would happen and what would Trump be saying if the president of any of the European Union countries or the prime ministers of any of these countries came out and said, oh, you know, let's boycott our companies that are manufacturing in the United States. Look at all these car companies that are manufacturing cars, European and Japanese companies that are manufacturing cars in the United States. What if foreign leaders were telling their own citizens to boycott those cars in their own markets as protests that they have manufacturing uh, some of their cars in the United States? I mean, doesn't it make sense if you're selling cars in the U.S. market, make some in the U.S. market. If you're selling cars in the European market, then make some of them in the European market. That would be true for American manufacturers that want to sell into Europe. Maybe it would be cheaper to manufacture in the same country in which you're selling. But the idea that an American president is going to try to encourage American citizens to boycott an American company, to what end? What is the purpose of American consumers who are thinking about buying a motorcycle to not buy Harley-Davidson? I mean, what are they going to buy instead? Are they going to buy a motorcycle made by a Japanese company, by a German company, by an Indian company? I mean, who stands to benefit by a boycott of Harley-Davidson. It's Harley-Davidson's competitors. Most of their competitors are not other American companies. I mean, Harley-Davidson is the main American motorcycle company, and it's the only one that's really got any kind of market share on a global basis of that industry. Why try to undermine an American success story 
just because they want to manufacture some of their products overseas to maintain the competitiveness. Remember, a lot of the stockholders of Harley-Davidson, they're American citizens too. This company is based in America. There are a lot of Americans that benefit from the success of Harley-Davidson. And if Harley-Davidson's management decides that the best interest of Harley-Davidson as a company to maintain its competitiveness, to continue to have a decent share of this global motorcycle market, if in order to do that, they need to shift some production from the United States to Europe, well, that's what they need to do. Why should they be boycotted? They should be applauded for doing the right thing to continue to grow and maintain their brand all around the world. I mean, look, when Donald Trump was a private citizen, he made plenty of decisions as a private citizen to use imported manufacturers or foreign manufacturers, imported products when he was building buildings or when buildings were being built with the Trump brand, they used imported steel. When he was uh, buying television sets for all his hotel rooms in Atlantic City, they were importing those television sets from Asia. They weren't trying to find American manufacturers. He wasn't, people weren't going to boycott him because he was using uh, foreign products. You know, he, it, the, the neckties that he's famous for selling or whatever the, the products are. In fact, even when they started making those Make America Great Again hats, those things were made in China, I think. I mean, all of the materials that they use, you know, Ivanka, who is now selling her, her clothing company, but look, all the stuff, the shoes, the handbags, the clothes, all that stuff is made abroad and brought in the United States. You know, where's the boycott there? Why wasn't he telling people to boycott his own daughter's company? Why wasn't he telling people to boycott his own company? Harley-Davidson has done nothing wrong. Trump is just mad. And Trump wants to blame problems on companies, on foreigners, just like is going on in Turkey when Erdogan wants to blame America for its problems, Trump is looking to scapegoat, whether it's Harley-Davidson, whether it's the Federal Reserve, or whether he's going to start blaming Russia or China or immigrants. This is part of the populist uh, message that resonates with a lot of people who are looking for people to blame. They don't want to look inward and, and do any self-reflecting, so they want to just blame all their problems on some politically vulnerable target that you can, you can win a lot of votes by going after. And in, in one respect, though, Erdogan is right about one thing. The U.S. has exacerbated the crisis in Turkey by turning up the heat, literally, uh, by imposing sanctions, threatening more sanctions uh, against Turkey. They're basically uh, you know, throwing gasoline onto a smoldering fire. Now, this, of course, is enraging the Turks, and it's making it easier for Erdogan to blame the United States for these problems, turning Turkey potentially, you know, an, Amer a, a, an important strategic ally uh, in uh, the Middle East uh, with, you know, shipping or, you know, very close proximity uh, to Europe where oil potentially can get from Middle East nations up into the European Union uh, or, or gas through pipelines uh, where it could bypass Russia. But if instead we end up driving uh, Turkey away from the U.S. towards Russia, uh, Syria, China, I mean, this has a rather substantial geopolitical implications, as well as also can push Europe 
further away. Look at all the criticism coming out of Germany regarding the sanctions on Iran and the fact that the Germans are saying, ignore these sanctions, right? Forget about them. We're going to do business with whoever we want. We don't appreciate the United States throwing its muscle around and trying to tell other sovereign nations who they can and cannot do business with. A lot of nations regret this. But why does America even have this power? Where did we get this club? The world gave us the club. It's the reserve status of the dollar. But we have the dollar as a reserve currency only to the extent that the world wants to tolerate that and bear the burden. They have to finance the United States. They have to be willing to accept an endless supply of our debt. No matter how much we borrow, and no matter the fact that we can never repay what we've already borrowed, they have to keep lending us more and more money, and then we turn around and beat them with the very club that they gave us. And I think it was a German economic minister mentioned that you know there was going to be some downside risks to the global economy you know, if you defy the United States and they start to sanction you or cut off your access to dollars. But what he doesn't get is if the world really stood up to the United States, it's they got nothing to lose and everything to gain. It's America that loses the privilege of issuing the reserve currency and all of the gains that, that flow to the United States from that, the short-term gains of being able to live beyond their means, of being able to appear to be you know, an island of safety in, in, in a sea of crisis. What makes the dollar the safe haven currency is its status as a reserve currency. The fact that when there's a problem anywhere, people buy the dollar, even if the problem in America is bigger than the problems of the country they're fleeing, because America doesn't suffer the consequences of the problem as long as people are buying the dollar. Look, if the Turkish lira hadn't dropped, then there wouldn't be a problem. If the dollar tanked and U.S. interest rates soared, there'd be a massive problem right now in the United States. But why are those things not happening? Because the U.S. gets a pass, because the dollar is the reserve currency, and because the perception is that it always will be. And the perception right now is that we've got this booming economy, and the Fed's going to keep on raising rates, and the Fed's going to shrink its balance sheet, even though the perception is completely devoid from what's going to happen in reality. Now, in conclusion, where we talk about perception being devoid from reality, I got to talk about what's been going on in the cryptocurrency markets. Again, not just for Bitcoin, which is the most popular of the cryptos, but all the other uh, coins out there. They call them the altcoins. And if you remember, if you go back to some of the podcasts I did a few weeks ago or a couple months ago, forget when, but when Bitcoin was still less than 40%, of the total market cap of the cryptos. Maybe it was 37, 38%. But I noticed that Bitcoin was gaining in dominance, right? Its share of the market. And you can check all this out if you go to coinmarketcap.com. That's the website that I, that I look at. But at the time, I said that I thought that this trend would continue, that Bitcoin would continue to gain share in a falling market and my forecast was that for Bitcoin's dominance to get to 50 to 60 percent and maybe slightly above 60 percent. Well, as I'm speaking, we're about 54 and a half percent. Today, we hit another new high for the year in Bitcoin dominance. And I think Bitcoin's gain in a sinking crypto market is creating a false sense of complacency uh, among 
the crypto holders out there because they're hanging their hat on the fact that Bitcoin is not going down that much. I mean, it's down, but it hasn't broken down. It hasn't gotten below 5,800. I think last night we got down to like 5,880. And of course, every time it gets around 6,000 or lower, it bounces. But each bounce seems to be lower and lower. It's hard for Bitcoin to put much distance between itself and and 6,000. And, and at some point, it's going to break down. But in the meantime, the fact that it's not, I think, is lulling people into a false sense of confidence. I've been saying that people have been pointing out that the relative strength of Bitcoin is somehow bullish. It shows that Bitcoin is gaining in popularity and therefore we're about to start a new bull market. It doesn't evidence that at all. I mean, where do you see, if you look at the crypto market as the broader market and Bitcoin is like one stock, if the broader market is getting really, really weak and everybody is concentrating in one, one stock, they would say, well, the market breadth is very narrow, right? You, you have, you have, you know, one stock is up and all these other stocks are down. So what is more likely that all the stocks that got killed are going to be pulled up by the one stock that didn't go down? Or that the one stock that didn't go down is going to finally cave in and follow all the other stocks, right? And that's normally what happens, right? As the market goes down, people kind of trade down the risk curve and they start hiding out in the few names that haven't gone down. But generally, the way the bear market ends is when they kill the generals too, not just all the troops. So a typical bear market, you would see the breath deteriorate. You would see the broad market going down. You could still point to some names that haven't gone down where people are holding on to a last bit of hope, and then eventually they give up, and then then they shoot the leaders too, right? Not just just the troops. That is what's going to happen with Bitcoin. But here again today on CNBC, I hear people talking about how there's panic selling in cryptocurrencies, and people should take advantage of the panic by buying. I don't see any panic. Nobody is panicking. Yes, we've had some big drops. We've had 10, 20% drops in one day, but... Hey, if there was panic in the cryptocurrencies, these things would be down 80 or 90% in one day. Sure, they're down. Ethereum is down 80% from its peak price, but it hasn't dropped 80% in one day. One day it will. It hasn't happened yet. There is no panic in the crypto community. The problem is complacency, not panic. The problem is if you look at all of these other currencies, they have broken down. Every single currency is breaking down below key support And the Bitcoin is the only holdout. And people are like, oh, but don't worry, because Bitcoin hasn't dropped yet. Well, by the time Bitcoin falls too, it's too late, right? That's going to be the capitulation low. I don't think finally, again, I don't think Bitcoin is going down for the count in this bear market. I think think it's going to wash out maybe to 2,000, 3,000. I don't know how low it's going to go, but I think it's going to ultimately stop falling. I mean, the total market cap right now, of all cryptos is 195,000 as I talk. We got up around maybe 195 billion. We got up to close to 800 billion at the peak. And right now it's about 194. But you know, the last time Bitcoin was around 6,100 and change, which is where it is now, the market cap was about 250 billion. So Bitcoin hasn't really dropped much at all, yet the rest of the uh, cryptocurrency community, you know, they've lost 50 billion in, in market cap. But I think once Bitcoin cracks, we're going back down maybe even below 100 billion in market cap before I think we get some kind of bottoming out of this cycle. And then maybe we'll have 
an upward move. I, I doubt the upward move will take it back up to 6,000. I mean, that might be a level that we can't get back to, but maybe we can. But that's going to be major resistance. Once this market breaks down and Bitcoin is wherever it's going to go, 2,000, 3,000, you know, wherever it gets to, the major upside resistance is going to be around this 5,800 to low 6,000s if we can even manage a rally that high. Then ultimately, it's going to collapse after that. I think we're not going to get a real collapse in the price of Bitcoin until we really get a breakout in the price of gold. I think as long as gold is still in the doldrums, then at least the cryptos can kind of hold out the hope that, look, gold's going nowhere. Bitcoin is the new gold. Buy Bitcoin. And in fact, if Bitcoin really breaks down and it does it in the next couple of weeks, that actually could be a catalyst to help gold. Not that I think there's a lot of people that would be buying uh, gold, but are not, and they're buying Bitcoin. I mean, there are some of those people, but I think the real damage that Bitcoin has done to gold's reputation is among investors or hedge fund managers or you know pet portfolio managers who don't own either Bitcoin or gold, but who might be tempted to buy gold as a hedge. But then they think, well, what's the point of buying gold? I mean, gold's getting disrupted by Bitcoin. All the gold bugs are going to be buying Bitcoin. They don't necessarily understand that there are a lot of people who like gold and understand that, that Bitcoin is fool's gold. But if you're of the opinion that, hey, Bitcoin is the new gold, it's gold 2.0, it's disrupting gold, then, oh, I'm not going to bother to buy gold because how's it going to go up if the market is being stolen by Bitcoin, right? So there probably is some institutional money that might be getting into gold, but they hear all the nonsense about how gold's obsolete. And so, well, you know what? Why bother to buy it? They're not buying Bitcoin either because maybe that's too risky. But if they think that Bitcoin is going to eat into gold's market share, that's a reason maybe not to buy gold. But once you see a big drop in Bitcoin, and maybe that story is not quite as believable, if fewer people believe that gold is going to be displaced by Bitcoin, then they may have another reason to buy it, especially if it really starts to go up. You know, one of the interesting things, I was listening to a, an interview on YouTube of Brock Pierce. And, you know, Brock also lives here in Puerto Rico. Uh, he's supposedly a Bitcoin billionaire, although I'm not sure if he's still a billionaire uh, based on what's happened uh, to the value of these currencies. I know he has a lot of uh, uh, Ether. He's big on EOS. I mean, the price of EOS has, has fallen precipitously uh, recently. So, I mean, I can't imagine he's still a billionaire if he ever actually technically was. But he made a lot of money uh, in cryptocurrencies. And I was watching uh, this interview and basically, the guy asks him, so Brock, explain to me, you know, what, what Bitcoin is. And, you know, he ought to know, right? I mean, he's big into it. And so he said, well, what it's not is a currency. He said, Bitcoin's not a currency because it's too expensive to use as a currency, which is true. But it's called a digital currency. And he's saying that it's not actually a currency because we can't use it as a currency because it's too expensive. It's also too volatile. Uh, and that's probably the bigger problem than the cost of actually using it is the the volatility. Now, I know a lot of people immediately say, wait a minute, you know, I can transfer Bitcoin to somebody instantaneously. It costs nothing. It's very easy. Yes. The best thing that you can do with Bitcoin is give it to somebody else. I mean, if somebody wants your Bitcoin, it's very efficient to transfer it to him. The problem is spending Bitcoins. You want to take your Bitcoins to the supermarket and buy some groceries. That's where you got a problem. But if you just want to give your Bitcoin to somebody else, transfer it to another wallet, that's easy. But, you know, the reason that it's so easy to transfer Bitcoin is because there's nothing there. 
You're transferring nothing. Why should it cost a lot to transfer a little? Or why should it cost anything to transfer nothing? That's why it's so cheap. I mean, if you want to transfer something of actual value, yes, it's going to be more expensive to move real value from point A to point B because you're moving something that's real. But if I'm just going to give you something that has no value, why should it cost me anything? Because you don't own anything. That is the reality of it. But when Brock Pierce was explaining it, he said Bitcoin is not a currency. He said it's a store of value. It's like gold. It's gold 2.0. So it, the funny thing is the way everything evolves. Because first, Bitcoin was marketed as a currency, right? It's great. It's inexpensive to use. It's great for micropayments. But then when it turned out that that doesn't work, well, now they have a new fallback. Well, it's not really a currency. It's a safe haven, right? It's a store of value. It's digital gold. But it's not a safe haven. It's not storing any value. First of all, if Bitcoin isn't a currency, if it doesn't have value as a currency, then what's its value? What are you storing? People said the value of Bitcoin is that it's a great currency. But if it's not a currency, if it's just a store of value, okay, what value does it have that you are storing? Because if, if it can't do anything, then there's no value. If it has no value, there's nothing to store. But there are other people now who have gone beyond that because it's obvious that Bitcoin is not a safe haven because it doesn't trade like a safe haven, right? It's not trading like a store of value. It's not correlated in any way to other safe havens, whether it, maybe it's gold or maybe it's U.S. Treasuries, if you think they're a, uh, a safe haven. Bitcoin does not behave like a safe haven, nor do any of the other cryptocurrencies, which brings me to the new supposed value of Bitcoin. And I've heard several people make this argument, hedge fund people, that the real value of Bitcoin is not that it's a currency or not that it's a safe haven, but that it is completely non-correlated to every other asset, right? Meaning that there is no relationship at all between Bitcoin and anything else. And therefore, it's great to own because you can have something in your portfolio that is not going to be correlated to anything else in your portfolio. And somehow owning an asset that has no correlation is valuable. Now, of course, maybe you could buy into that nonsense. But first of all, the interesting thing is every time Bitcoin fails to live up to something that's been hyped up, they just invent another reason that it's going to work. But simply having an asset that's correlated to nothing doesn't give it value. You want to have a negative correlation to something so that you know that if you put it in a portfolio and something goes down, that it's going to go up. If it is, doesn't have any dependable correlation, if it's just purely random, whether it goes up or down, I don't see the value, especially since it's not really an asset. Because at the end of the day, yes, if you only go down, no matter what other assets do, whether they go up or down, if you only go down, well, then you're non-correlated, but you're non-correlated because you always go down. Well, I mean, obviously, you can't own an asset that only goes down. Now, you can short that asset, but who's going to buy it from you? How are you going to short something that only goes down? Because once people realize that it only goes down, nobody's going to want to buy it. So I think this justification of Bitcoin being valuable because it's correlated to nothing is it just another made-up excuse to try to rationalize buying it. Being correlated to nothing because ultimately you have no value at all, and that's why you're not correlated to anything, doesn't give a make-believe asset real-world value.